Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. It is my great pleasure to welcome you here this evening. I'd like to first, before we begin, to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the land that the University of Sydney is built on is the Cadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to past, present and future and elders uh, of the Eora Nation. Tonight is a very special event. My name is Bunty Averson from the Media and Communications Department and together with Sydney Ideas, we're welcoming Christina Lamb to the University to speak to us about her experiences. Now, Christina is a world-renowned foreign correspondent, as you all know, because that's why you're here. Christina, let me just briefly remind you who Christina is, or some of her brilliance. Christina Lamb is a multi-award-winning journalist for Britain's Sunday Times. She's been Washington Bureau Chief for the paper, and in 2009 was awarded the prestigious Pre-Bayou Calvados for her reporting from Afghanistan. She won the Foreign Press Award for Story of the Year in 2007 and has been named Foreign Correspondent of the Year in the British Press Awards five times. She's written very movingly of the places that she's travelled to at great personal risk. So she's written newspaper articles for a newspaper and for a newspaper audience but she's also extended that and has written books. The most recent book is The Girl from Aleppo, Najin's Escape from War to Freedom, which is the most extraordinary tale of a teenager with cerebral palsy who escaped war in a wheelchair to join the flood of refugees fleeing to Germany. This is going to be very interesting. We have a third year MECO student fresh back from Korea where she's been doing an international fellowship to speak tonight with Christina about her career. But as way of introduction, we're just going to show you a short video to give you a taste of what life is like for this extraordinary woman on the road. Chanel, 
bag of wine gums, uh, Rudyard Kipling's book Kim, and that was more or less it. I basically kind of fell in love with Afghanistan right from the beginning. When I arrived there in 88, the Russians were still there. So then I started going back and forth into Afghanistan with the Mujahideen and started covering war. I'm incredibly curious. My mum would say I'm nosy. <laughs> I want to see things for myself. And I'm really determined. Like, there's nowhere I haven't got into. Nowhere is like a starting point, okay, for me. And I want to tell the stories of people who have no way of getting their own stories told. If I see something that's really shocking that's happening, I want people outside to know about it. And I want them to know about it because I hope that that will change. To me, you know, often the real heroes or heroines in the war are the people that are still managing to educate and feed their children. That's the sort of story I really want to tell much more than this sort of bang bang, if you like. I think in Britain we have a lot of interest here generally in foreign news. Sometimes it's got a great tradition of foreign news. They're not afraid to go against the tide and say this is what's really happening. We have become targets in a way that we weren't. So, you know, if a soldier gets killed in Afghanistan, it's not headlines, whereas if a journalist gets killed, it is. Um, you know, it's been brought home horribly to us in the Sunday Times because we lost Marine Corbin in Syria.
that's where it's great working for the big place at the time because you can really set the agenda back in England and the parliamentary questions were asked and in the end you know, more Jews were set, more helicopters were set. I hate that stereotype of the hard drinking drug addict <laughs> correspondent that comes back and tells all the stories in the bar. Um, so that's introducing Christina Lamb to you. Now I'd like to invite Christina to come to the stage with Apana Balukamar for a conversation. Please, ladies, join us up here. We're going to have a bit of a conversation and then, well, they're going to have a bit of a conversation and then we're going to invite questions from the audience. So if you can hold on to those and we will come to you a bit later. Hello everyone. Um, thank you so much again, Christina, for coming and joining us here at Sydney Ideas. We are so excited to be hosting you. Um, so you touched upon it a little bit in the video, how you began at 21 when you were deployed to Afghanistan, but can you tell me about that a little bit more? How did that come about? <laughs> sure, thank you. Thanks for all coming. Um, so, well, it all started really because of a wedding invitation. Um, I, when I left university, really I wanted to be a novelist, not a journalist. Um, but I spent the summer working as an intern at the Financial Times in London. And I travelled in India when I was a student, and so I was a bit obsessed by India. So my foreign editor one day was supposed to go to a lunch of South Asian politicians. And last minute, he couldn't go. So he said to me, you're always going on about India. Why don't you go to this lunch? So I went, and I sat next to somebody who was the Secretary General of the Pakistan People's Party, which was the opposition party. And he asked me if I would like to interview Benazir Bhutto, who at that time was living in London in exile. So of course, I said yes. So I went to go and interview her. And the day that I did it was the day that she announced her engagement to Asif Ali Zadari. So her flat was absolutely full of beautiful bouquets of flowers. Anyway, she then went back to Pakistan. I went to work for a local TV station in the UK. And I was the most junior person in the newsroom. And one day I came home from work and there was this most beautiful gold inscribed invitation. And it was to Benazir's wedding in Karachi. So of course I went. Um, and actually I was just starting out. I didn't have any money. And Benazir was very kind, arranged for me to stay with her secretary. So I didn't have to pay for a hotel. And she invited me to not just all the kind of ceremonial events, but also small events with her friends and family. 
And you all know that South Asian weddings are very colorful and go on for a long time. So this wedding went on for like a week. And being Benazir, it was something like out of Arabian Nights. And every evening after all these ceremonial events, there would be gatherings in her house with her political colleagues to discuss how to try and topple Pakistan's military dictator, General Zia. So I was meeting these people who had been tear-gassed and tortured and arrested, um, all to try and bring democracy to their country, which was something I'd always taken for granted. And also, I mean, the most dangerous thing I'd ever had to do was find my way home late at night if I missed the last train. So I was fascinated and couldn't really imagine going back to reporting in Birmingham on flower shows and things like that. Um, in fact, the last story I ever did for Central TV was a man who turned his car back to front so it looked like it was going forwards when it was going backwards. <laughs> um, I don't think I was a great loss to television. So anyway, I gave him my notice, um, went to talk to foreign editors of newspapers in the UK about freelancing from Pakistan. And actually, nobody was interested. They all said to me, General Zia's been there 11 and a half years. Nothing's going to change. And I was like, but Benazir's just gone back, and she's going to topple him, and it's all going to be different. And they just looked at me like, you know, you're 21. What do you know? So what they did say was, we are interested in Afghanistan, because at that time, the Russians were in Afghanistan. So I said, OK, I will cover that. So I took something called a flying coach up the Grand Trunk Road to Peshawar. And as I said in that video, I had no idea what foreign correspondents did or needed, so it took quite inappropriate things. And I'll never forget when I arrived in the old city as the sun was going down. And I, it was, if you've read Kipling, Peshawar, even today really, is still like the scene he describes in Kim of these sort of wooden framed buildings all leaning against each other. And everybody seemed to be carrying a gun. And I asked a rickshaw driver to take me to a cheap hotel. And he took me to somewhere called Green's Hotel which I later discovered was where arms dealers stayed. Um, I discovered this because somebody actually tried to sell me a Chinese multi-barrel rocket launcher over breakfast. <laughs> Very cheap price, I get that. So then I just started traveling with the Mujahideen and that's how it all started. So you've talked about you landed there and there were guns and obviously you've reported from a lot of war zones. How do you balance personal safety in those kind of climates? Is there such a thing? Well, I have to say, when at that age, when I started, I didn't think about that at all. I guess when you're 21, you would know this better than me now. You think that you're indestructible. Um, and it was a very different time as well. And I was just so completely fascinated by Afghanistan from the moment that I went in there that I was just really intrigued. And I remember, I told you that I didn't know what foreign correspondents did. So there were seven different um, resistance groups fighting the Russians. The Pakistani intelligence, which was sort of overseeing all of this, had learned from the British the old divide and rule. So they um, divided them up in seven groups so that they could play them off against each other. 
and sometimes we'd give more arms to one group and sometimes more to another. So I thought, well, there are seven groups, I should go and interview all of them. Now, um, normal foreign correspondents do not go and interview seven groups. They find out which ones are the most influential and just go and see those. So because I went to all seven, I went to the smallest one, which was run by somebody called Professor Mujadidi. And the spokesperson for that party was a certain Hamid Karzai, um, who at that time nobody had heard of. And he was delighted to have a foreign correspondent come speak to him, because very few did. And he was a real Anglophile. He'd studied at um, Simla in India, or British Hill Station. And he loved Cadbury's chocolate and Somerset Morn stories. And so he was very happy to speak to me. And he said to me, if you want to understand Afghanistan, you need to understand the tribes of Afghanistan. Uh, so come to my house for dinner. So I did. And his house was full of all these tribal elders from Kandahar and Uruzgan and Helmand and Nimruz. Uh, all with long beards and um, turbans, and they told the most amazing stories. And I started to think, I can't make up stories like these. I want to tell these kind of stories. But the other thing that happened too was the Afghan war against the Russians had been presented, it seemed to me, in a very black and white way. That the uh, So it was still the Cold War. And so you had these kind of men from the mountains with old Lee Enfield rifles fighting one of the most powerful armies on earth, the Red Army. And so the West was supporting the Afghans fighting the communist army. Um, and notoriously, we were on the same side then as uh, Osama bin Laden and some of the Arab fighters, but that's maybe another story. Um, so I, when I got there, I thought, you know, this was quite straightforward, black and white, David, Goliath kind of thing. When I met those tribal elders that first night in Hamid Karzai's house and they were telling me stories, all of which seemed to involve killing people, um, mostly the stories were not about the Russians. They were about tribal um, conflicts, about the Alexai fighting the Badakzai and the Norzai. And, um, and so I started to realize this is way more complicated than I had read in the papers or seen on TV. And I think that was quite a good lesson early on. And of course, Hamid Karzai turned out to be quite a useful contact. <laughs> so when you are sent to these new places, um, what's the process of kind of embedding yourself within the culture um, or knowing what stories maybe to pursue over others and getting people to speak to you? That must be challenging. Um, to be honest, I've never really had difficulty getting people to speak to me. I think I'm always amazed at how much people do want to speak to journalists, actually. Um, I, I mean, then I was living in Peshawar, and, you know, I much prefer that, really, being actually there and getting to know a place, and I didn't like the journalists that kind of just flew in for a week and wrote a story about some great battle and then went away again. I was also a bit dubious, too, because I knew you know, the Mujahideen were very disorganized, so it was very hard to predict what they were going to do. I always thought that was one of the reasons that the Russians couldn't defeat them, because they, they didn't know what they were going to do next. So when you went off with them into Afghanistan, 
you would be often there for weeks and nothing would actually happen, you know, and you would go to places and Afghans are incredible at telling stories and you'd arrive at a place and they'd say, ah, oh, shame you weren't here yesterday. We shot down three helicopters. And then you'd say, but well, where's the wreckage? <laughs> and, there were, you know, these stories were often much exaggerated. So, um, and it was a very different time because um, we had no mobile phones, no internet. And so I would go off for weeks and have no contact. There was no phone service at all in Afghanistan then. It was completely cut off. And then when I came back to Pakistan, I would have to then call an international operator and either dictate the story, and I used, used to have to bribe the operator usually, or I would uh, use something called telex, which I'm sure you have no idea what it is. <laughs> um, what about in terms of being female? Have you found that that's helped or hindered you um, when you're reporting, say, from quite conservative societies? Um, so, yeah, people often ask that, because I've spent most of my career in the Middle East, and as you know, in a lot of those places, they're quite misogynistic societies, and uh, women are kind of hidden away. Um, I actually find it an advantage being a woman for several reasons. Uh, one, and I'm sorry, men here, but I think women are better at listening. <laughs> I think people find it easier to talk to women. Um, now, this isn't always in a good way. In the, sometimes I think that in some of these places they don't take women seriously, so they tell us things, um, not really thinking we're actually proper journalists with real newspapers that will go away and report. Um, and But the main thing that's an advantage is that we have access to the women, which are half the population. My male colleagues that go to these countries, um, you know, can't talk to most of the women. And I don't really see how you can give a very good, um, complete picture of a place if you can only meet half the society. And I've never found a, a man refuse to speak to me. So, um, yeah, so I think it's been an advantage. I've noticed particularly in your work for the Sunday Times, but also in the books that you've um, co-authored, you, you seem to like to talk to the women that, and the tiny little acts of defiance, I suppose. You, you manage to find those in your stories, whether you're reporting from Syria or Afghanistan or Pakistan. Why is that a thread that you are very passionate about particularly? Yeah. Well, as I said in that video, I don't really like the bang-bang okay, in the war. Um, in fact, it's the photographers that have to take the most risks because they have to be right up front. I'm really interested in what a war does to a country. And, you know, look at these wars that are going on at the moment. Um, Iraq has been going on 14 years, Syria six years, Afghanistan's been at war pretty much 40 years. So, you know, there are a lot of people in these countries that have only ever known war. But, you know, life goes on. There are millions of people in those countries still going to work every day. I was in Syria in December. I went to a wedding, which actually was um, quite a joyful affair, despite, you know, the terrible things that are happening in the country. Um, so that's what fascinates me, you know, how people still keep their life going when all of this is happening, when they're living on the edge and they've no idea when they go out in the morning if they'll come back again in the evening. And to me, it's often the women that are the, the heroines in this because they're the ones having to sort of feed 
educate and protect their children. So that's what I like to write about. And frankly, I mean, I spend most of my time going to bad places, meeting bad people. And it would be pretty depressing to do if it wasn't for the fact that there are all these amazing people. I am constantly astonished by the people that I come across and the things that they're doing to try and change things, even on a very small way, um, in the most difficult situation. I was in Kabul recently doing something about women, and I met this group of women cyclists, and they go out biking every weekend on the Friday, and men throw stones at them, shout abuse at them. Um, a couple of them have had, had men drive into them on motorbikes, but they still do it. And they all said to me, we are like, feel like we're flying when we're doing it. It's our act of rebellion by doing this. Um, and they were so happy. It was kind of really uplifting to see. Speaking of which, um you, of course, co-authored I Am Malala, who is an incredible woman that I know that you've all heard of as well. Um, tell me about that process of collaborating with somebody who is such a figurehead. So, I mean, it was a great privilege to do it because Malala is a, a very special girl. Um, I was contacted to do it because I had spent a lot of time in Pakistan and I'd actually interviewed her father a few times because he was a peace activist and he was a headmaster of her school but he'd set up his own school with about a thousand kids there and he's a very inspiring figure in his own right so I met him when the Taliban went into their valley long before anybody actually knew about Malala um, and so when Malala was shot, I was actually living in Washington, and I had no idea I knew her father, because their surname, Yusufzai, is a bit like kind of Smith or Jones in the UK. It's very common. And I then moved back to England, and I was in my office the first day back, and our editor said to me, do you think there's any chance of getting an interview with Malala? And I said, I don't know, maybe I could try. And literally, I went on to my email account, and there was a message from an agent who said, I'm Malala's agent, and um, would you be interested in writing her book? So I went to go and meet Malala. She'd just come out of hospital in Birmingham, and they were living in this 10th floor apartment. It was a horrible, cold, grim, snowy day. And we arrived and walked into this apartment building, and there, standing by the lift, was this short man with a moustache who looked really familiar. And I looked at him and I said, I know you. And he said, yes, I'm Ziadine. I'm Malala's father. And only then did I realize that it was the same person. <laughs> so, he, um, so it was really because of that that they'd contacted me. And also the first book that I ever wrote was a book called Waiting for Allah about Pakistan and her dad had read this when he was a student and liked the book so um, so they contacted me but I kind of had to be interviewed by Malala which was funny being interviewed by this sort of 14 year old girl um, and she was very sweet she came and sat down next to me on the sofa and actually when she was shot one of her eardrums was uh, burst so she couldn't hear from one side so she sat the other side brought me tea and then we started talking and I was just amazed at how eloquent and passionate she was 
Um, and also how completely, there was like no bitterness at what happened to her, completely forgiving. In fact, she said, you know, I would like to meet the people that shot me so that I could explain to them why it's important that girls go to school and if they want their own sisters and mothers to be treated by female doctors, then you know women have to actually go to school and study to be doctors. So um, I was just really taken with her from the first moment. And also I cared very strongly about women's education. It seemed to me fundamental, it still seems to me fundamental to changing a society. So I, you know, somebody who'd risked their life for that, I thought I really wanted to work with. And so it was wonderful spending time with her and her family, getting to know them all. Um, uh, in the end, my family, we all used to go and stay with them. We've all become friends. And it's quite funny because, I mean, one of the great things about working with her was seeing what she's like as a normal teenager. You know, she likes Justin Bieber. She's a very good mimic. Um, she fights with her brother all the time. <laughs> and so my son, who's the same age as her brother, Kushal, used to say to me, Mommy, how could she win a Nobel Peace Prize? She's always fighting with Rochelle. Um, what kind of questions did Malala ask you, though? You mentioned there um, that it was essentially like an interview. Um, how did you get the job? How did she pick you? <laughs> well, it was more a conversation, really, about what I cared about and, you know, what, what did I think about doing the book? How would I do it? And... Actually, she has a very... I'd never done anything like that, writing in the voice of a 16-year-old girl, as she was by the time we did it. Um, and I found... Her, she has a very particular way of speaking, and it wasn't really difficult to, to write like her. And I knew the situation very well that she'd gone through. But it was quite different because, you know... I. As a journalist, I think of myself as a storyteller. I often spend what I consider quite a lot of time with people, listening to their stories. But this was quite different, actually, you know, a period of many months and actually often living in their house. And um, it was, you know, you really start to understand much better what it's like to actually live in that situation. Of course, you, you never know unless you actually have. but to be in fear the whole time as they were. Was it a similar process in journey to um, from Aleppo with New Jean, 16-year-old New Jean? So, I mean, that came about because I was, so really for the last two years, the biggest story in Europe um, had been the refugee crisis. So I was covering that. And I was concerned about the way it was being represented back home, that, it was such a big number of people. I mean, this can sound a bit odd, but when the refugee crisis started, I actually thought, this is good, because I've been covering all these forgotten wars for years, and people don't take any notice. And now that these people are coming to Europe, to our shores, we will have to care about these wars and try and do something about it. Of course, that isn't what happened, and the refugee crisis kind of seized Europe. And I think we saw... Um, well, so best and worst of humanity, but the worst was really governments. 
um, failing. I mean, the European Union is 500 million affluent people. About 1.2 million refugees came into the EU. Really, they should have been able to deal with that, I think. Um, so I was covering that, and I could see that politicians were describing the people in a way I found really disturbing, like talking about them as a swarm of people or an epidemic, as if they were a disease, not real people. And I was looking for a way to find one person to really tell the story through so that people would understand that, you know, no one leaves their home unless they really have to. You know, leaving everything you've ever known and worked for behind is a really difficult thing to do. And it was a really difficult journey to difficult for an able-bodied person. So when I, so in September 2015, I was on the border between Hungary and Serbia. And Hungary were probably the worst in the way that they responded to the refugee crisis. Their government was really um, determined to stop people coming in. They built a 12-foot-high fence. And the day that that fence was completed, I was on the Hungarian side and Najin was on the Serbian side. So I was with other journalists on the Hungarian side and suddenly people said, hey, on the other side, there's this girl in a wheelchair who speaks fluent English and wants to be an astronaut. <laughs> this is like kind of journalistic gold. <laughs> so, um, so I went to talk to her and lo and behold, Najin did speak fluent English. She. Um, had learned English. She'd never gone to school because she couldn't walk, so she'd been pretty much imprisoned in this fifth-floor apartment in Aleppo with no lift or anything. And so she used to watch TV day and night from like 8.30 in the morning to about 2 in the morning. And she taught herself English from watching um, an American soap opera called Days of Our Lives, which... <laughs> Um, to me, was the worst part really of doing the book because I had to watch this soap opera, um, and I thought it was very funny because she they fled Aleppo and they went to a town called Mambich. Um, fled Aleppo when Assad's forces started bombing it, and then in Mambich they were there, and then ISIS Daesh came to Mambich. They had to flee again. But she said to me, the worst thing about going to Membeach when Daesh came was that they kept having power cuts, so she couldn't watch Days of Our Lives. <laughs> I'd never really thought about that as something that people were worried about. Um, and she was also so funny because she said that um, her biggest disappointment coming to Europe was that she used to watch MasterChef all the time, and she thought the food would look like that. So she was very funny, and I didn't, you know, it would have been very easy to have written a, a depressing refugee book, and, but actually it was really nice to have somebody who had this very kind of quirky outlook on life, very positive outlook. She's one of these people, I was just with her a couple of weeks ago in Manchester for a day, that you spend one day with, you leave feeling kind of better about life, and... Um, that, in fact, the most difficult thing about doing the book with her was that she never complains about anything. And I kept saying to her, you know, it's a difficult journey, right, crossing Europe in a wheelchair. You were in a wheelchair that was too big for you. You were being bumped around. Um, you know, your sister pushing you over 
sunflower fields and um, muddy fields and um, people traffickers trying to force you to do things and take your money. No facilities for disabled people. Um, you know, imagine going to the toilet and washing themselves. And um, it must have been really hard. So it was quite hard getting her to actually, you know, admit the difficulties of it. It must be quite different going from co-authoring larger novels to writing shorter articles for the Sunday Times. Do you find it difficult to kind of switch between those two tones or voices? Well, I feel privileged to be able to do both because sometimes one of the frustrating things about journalism is having to condense things. And like I said at the beginning, you know, I had seen how the war in Afghanistan against the Russians was being oversimplified so much but you know sometimes you have to do that because you can't start explaining all these tribal conflicts in a sort of 800 word article so it's great to be able to have the books and tell things in more detail and um, I'm quite lucky because I don't work all year for the Sunday Times I work seven months a year so I have time to do books and be mum a bit as well um, so what's the response generally been? Do you get a lot of fan mail? Do you get hate mail? <laughs> um, well, on Malala, you may know that, um, unfortunately, although she's admired around the world, her own country, Pakistan, is very negative towards her. Not everybody, but a lot of people. The book is banned, I think, in most places, and... Uh, many people, in fact, when I went there to research the book, I hadn't told people I was doing the book because she was a target. So I thought, you know, if I say I'm doing it, I'll be a target too. And when I went to Pakistan to do the research and told some of my old friends that I was doing this book, they said to me, why are you doing this book? What, what earth would make you do that? Everybody knows she wasn't shot. So I was like, well, what do you mean she wasn't shot? Or people would say to me, her dad shot her so they could get asylum. So <laughs> I couldn't believe it because, you know, I'd interviewed the doctors, uh, you know, I'd seen the x-rays. It was no doubt that she was shot, but um, a lot of people there absolutely won't believe it. And so they are very abusive towards her. Um, she's very laid back about it. She says that Pakistan people have suffered so many disappointments um, They've never had a prime minister finish a term of office. You know, most recently one was kicked out a couple of weeks ago. Um, so she says, you know, they don't trust anything because of that. So, you know, that's why they don't take things at face value. Um, it's sad, but so I get some of that. What I get to is I get a lot of other 16-year-old girls now having done two books with 16-year-old girls. Um, contacting me saying that they've got an inspirational story <laughs> and I don't I mean it was great doing them but I don't really want to spend my whole life writing as a 16 year old girl um, now as journalists you know we're often taught to try and stay neutral to just report the facts to distance ourselves a little bit from the subject matter we're reporting on but you often report from such highly politicized climates so is that even possible in your line of work? Well, I don't really believe that there's anything such as being an objective journalist because, you know, your background 
your own education and experience is going to colour what you see and how you report on things. I try, I said I see myself as a storyteller, I try to basically just tell people's stories as they tell me and uh, not put myself in it. But, you know, the fact is our own backgrounds do make a difference. So... Um, and I, I don't think we should really pretend otherwise, but we are able to give a platform to people who might not otherwise be able to get their story out. So that's what I try to do. Um, but, I, you know, the job has changed. I talked about the technology um, and how I used to use telex and dictate copy. Um, now, of course, it's all very easy because we have mobile phones and satellite phones and I can send a story immediately from the top of a mountain in the Hindu Kush or in the middle of the desert. In fact, during the war in Iraq, uh, the first bit in 2003, we had been told that mobile phones didn't work in southern Iraq and I had my phone with me and suddenly on the second day it rang and I was astonished. So I answered the phone and it was um, an estate agent. <laughs> um, and I'd been house hunting just before the war started. So it was this guy saying to me, oh, um, Mrs. Lamb, I've got this amazing property for you. <laughs> so I said, well, it's not really very convenient. I'm in Iraq for the war. <laughs> and he was from a particularly aggressive property dealers called Foxton's. <laughs> And so he was only momentarily phased. And then he said, but Mrs. Lamb, this is a great opportunity. It's near a very good school. <laughs> so anyway, um, so sometimes it leads to crazy situations. But um, what has changed, to, but mostly it's good that you know we now can file quickly. Sometimes I think it makes us vulnerable to propaganda and mistakes get made, but um, for the most part, it's good. What's bad is that the job has become much more dangerous. Uh, we are regarded as targets now in a way that we weren't when I started out. You know, in that war in Afghanistan, people did get hurt, but it was a war. And it was largely because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time, or they'd done something silly, or been, you know, too reckless. Now, we are the front line in many places. I've had friends killed, I've had friends kidnapped, and I think, you know, all of us are scared of ending up in one of those videos with a knife at your throat. So that's um, changed the job quite a lot, and it's meant that there are actually some places that have become too dangerous to go to, and I never imagined, even maybe five years ago, that I would say that. In that context, though, do you ever have moments where you just wonder, is this worth it? Like, am I making a difference through my work? Well, in 2006, I, you saw in that video, I talked about being um, in this ambush from the Taliban in Helmand, and I was very lucky to escape. So later that year, I was in a hotel that was suicide bombed. And then in 2007, 10 years ago, I was on Benazir Bhutto's bus when it was blown up. Um, and that was the biggest ever bomb in Pakistan. 150 people were killed. So I did think after that, okay, you know, I've had too many things. You start to feel your luck is running out. 
And the night I got back from Pakistan after that bomb, I went for a dinner in London that the Bar Council hosted for a very brave Zimbabwean lawyer called Beatrice Matetwa, and who I knew a bit. And I had reported quite a lot from Zimbabwe. And by the way, I find Zimbabwe the most depressing of all the stories that I've covered. Um, because, you know, in a way, when there's a war, there's a reason for a war. You might not agree with it, but in Zimbabwe's case, this is one man, Robert Mugabe, now 93, who is basically killing, starving, destroying his own population just so that he can stay in power. So I had gone back and forth quite a lot to Zimbabwe, and I knew Beatrice. So at this dinner in London, I told her what happened in Pakistan, and I said to her, you know, I don't know whether it's worth it anymore. And I said, I find it very frustrating with Zimbabwe going back and forth. We're taking a risk going, because at that time we were um, not allowed. In British journalists were banned, and so we were going undercover. Um, and I said, you know, anybody I speak to in Zimbabwe, I'm putting at risk. And, you know, what's the point? It's not making any difference. And she said to me, if people like you stop reporting what people like me are doing, what is the point of what we're doing? And so that made me think, and I didn't stop. <laughs> How do you go from reporting on something so awful and witnessing those atrocities to then coming back to Britain um, and going to a dinner party or, say, coming here and talking with me at Sydney Ideas? I mean, they're just worlds apart. How do you stay sane? <laughs> Uh, maybe you should ask my husband that. <laughs> um, so, well, you're right. I mean, often the hardest thing about coming back from a war is adjusting to normal life. And it can be very difficult to care about, you know, paying for the mortgage or buying tiles for the kitchen when you've been in a place where people are risking their life every day. Um, but I think I'm lucky I have a close family and I come back and, um, you know, if my husband's been looking after our son all the time, I've been away. He doesn't expect me to come back and then kind of hang out in bars with other war correspondents telling war stories. He expects me to, you know, go and be mum and cook dinner and pick up my son from football and things. And in a way, that's very grounding, I think. So, um, yeah, I... Uh, but I, you know, it is difficult, and sometimes I've seen colleagues who get into this thing where they don't really come back; they straight away go off somewhere else. And when someone's doing that, you know that something's wrong. And in fact, a photographer from like my sister paper, The Times, committed suicide. He hung himself in uh, Zimbabwe, and he'd been doing exactly that. He'd come from, you know, Afghanistan, gone to Iraq, gone to Somalia. You know, he was constantly in one danger zone after another. How does um, the Sunday Times um, kind of help you in terms of your safety or even just <laughs> when you're on the ground? I mean, you mentioned in the video you've got that, like, little bag with some coffee and, you know, some blood clotting materials and, and things like that. But beyond that, are you, is there training involved? So <laughs> things have changed a lot at the Sunday Times, since my colleague was killed in Syria, that you know made everybody think. And after that, they brought in a whole process where we have to fill in these risk assessment forms, 
which are a bit crazy. I mean, there's an element of sort of ass covering here because it, you know, you're asked to put what is your exit plan from places if something happened. I mean, how do I don't have an exit plan? I don't have like a miniature army to rescue me from somewhere. Um, but they want you to put something so that they can sign off on it. And actually, once they were sending me to Libya in the height of all the fighting a couple of years ago when there were no foreigners really in Libya, all the diplomats had left, all the aid agencies. And so I put on this form, I answered everything with like nothing. Like, who, who will you meet? I don't know. Where, what's your exit plan? I don't know. <laughs> um, where are you going to stay? Like, and they still signed off on it. So I'm not too sure about our <laughs> risk assessment. But, um, but we do do something called hostile environment courses now. The first time I ever did one was just before the war in Iraq in 2003. And actually, we, those we did because we couldn't get war insurance unless we did them. Uh, I found that a bit strange because by then I'd already been a war correspondent for about 16 years, so it was slightly odd them being told what I was supposed to do when I was under fire. Um, but I have to say, like, the medical stuff was very useful. Um, and now we're supposed to do those every three years, and I'm getting a lot of angry emails from my foreign editors because I haven't done it recently. So in theory, we don't go anywhere unless we've updated it. But I don't know. They do things like pretend to kidnap you. Um, <laughs> yes. Moving into, I guess, a completely new topic. What kind of media do you consume on a daily basis? Um, actually, I start the day looking at Twitter. Um, I think that that gives me quickest, uh, you know, what is what everybody is talking about at the moment. I don't use it as a reliable source particularly, but it, you know, you can quickly see um, what's the main thing that's happening. You know, if North Korea has fired off a missile overnight, or I mean, actually, in the UK, we are five hours ahead of America. And President Trump tends to tweet at 2 a.m. <laughs> so usually I get up and there's a, a crazy tweet. <laughs> and so, um, so that's the first thing I look at. And then uh, all sorts of other things. I mean, I still look at a lot of traditional media and newspapers and TV. And then sites like Politico and BuzzFeed. And used to look at Vice. I, tend to think Vice has become a bit of a caricature of what it is, which I'm probably not supposed to say because I think that my that, uh, news owns Vice now or <laughs> has a share in it. But um, yeah, it's. I thought it was doing really interesting, edgy stuff at the beginning. Now I just think it's doing the same thing everywhere. And I think we're still struggling a bit to really see how to cover news in a digital age. and. I find it, I mean, the depressing thing is that everybody can see what's most read. And what's most read tends not to be the foreign news stories. Um, and so as we've all been going through a crisis in the media, and most of the advertising has gone to Facebook and Google, um, and we've cut back, foreign has been the thing that's been most cut, because what I do is expensive. 
So, for example, the Sunday Times used to have four of us in London going off to places. Now it's just me, and that's not good because also there's you know more stuff going on. But sometimes it's also depressing. I mean, like The Guardian, their most read story in the refugee crisis, most read story at all, was the journey of a refugee cat. <laughs> so, you know, my digital people say you need to start trying to find cats in war zones. <laughs> That must be very disheartening, though, for you to kind of get to also see some of those analytics and to see the extent to which people maybe care. How do you cut through the noise? Like, in your storytelling, are you employing any kind of new um, methods, I suppose, to try and perk their interest in those foreign affairs more? I don't know. I guess I've always felt, and maybe starting off in TV was quite useful in this way. I remember... Uh, the news editor, when I started, said, you know, remember, everybody's much more interested in what their neighbor is doing, and nobody really wants to hear what you have to say, so you've got to grab their attention. So I'm still a great believer that you have to have a very interesting first paragraph, first sentence. Um, and I feel that... I don't know, I suppose I'm lucky in a way because I work for a weekly paper, so we still do quite long reads, and there does still seem to be an interest in that kind of journalism. I think people feel there's such a proliferation of information out there that, um, that they want some kind of longer, more in-depth um, explanation. Um, so you mentioned as well that your bureau has gone down from having four people to just to just you covering um, foreign affairs. Um, what well, do we, you we have some correspondents based around the world. Oh, okay, but <laughs> okay, your team. Um, but what do you think the implications of those of those kinds of decisions are? Because it's happening worldwide and at all major news organisations. Yeah, I think it's a real shame because you know there's no substitute for actually being there, being on the ground, and. Um, you can't do that if you haven't got the people. And y y yes, there's lots of sort of citizen journalists and social media, and but you, we don't know who a lot of these people are. And it isn't the same as being there actually seeing what's happening. Definitely. Well, thank you, Christina. Um, I think those are the ends of most of my questions, or at least I have a lot more, but my time is officially up. Um, so we will throw to the audience now. Um, if anyone would like to ask Christina anything, um, maybe raise your hand. Um, what are some of the most important advice you would give to aspiring journalists? And uh, what are some of the things that you wish you have known or have done or not have done early in your career? Thank you. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, in terms of what I wish I had known, um, I mean, the way I started out, just going off to a place, I still recommend doing that to people. Uh, I mean, the downside of it was I had no idea really how newsrooms worked, and I saw later that some of my friends who'd gone to journalism college and um, had made, you know, had a network of colleagues or contacts in journalism in different newspapers and TV and that I didn't have because I'd just gone off. Um, and actually, I mean, I didn't actually work in a newsroom until I was 34. And I was really shocked at how it worked when I went and... Um, and like I said at the beginning, because there was no uh, internet or anything, I never saw what I wrote. And so it was like filing into a black hole. I didn't really know 
you know, what appeared. Um, so things are quite different. So I would still recommend going off. I think the qualities for a good journalist, you need determination. Um, you're mostly going to places people don't want you to be or telling stories they don't want told. Um, and so you need to be persistent and you need to be curious and need to talk to people and listen to people. I think, you know, everybody's got an interesting story. Um, you know, on your own street, I'm sure there's lots of interesting stories, but a lot of us don't actually bother to sit and listen and have the time of day to, to hear. Good evening. I was just wondering what your response would be to the idea that journalism is dead in the face of new age technology and social media? I hope it's not dead. <laughs> I'm encouraged to see lots of journalism students. So, um, you know, it's changing. And like I said, I think we still don't really know what's going to happen. I think we should be coming up with new ways to tell stories that we're not really at the moment. We're still telling the stories in the same way, but maybe on different platforms. Um, and so, you know, it's an exciting time in a way. There's a lot more uh, platforms out there. It's challenging because anybody leaving journalism school, media studies now, it, it's going to be unusual to do what I've done, really, to just be a print journalist. You're going to be expected to be able to do everything, video and photography and social media and um, writing or TV broadcast as well. So, you know, that's quite different. And I don't always think that's great because I think they're quite different skills and... Um, I think if you are trying to do all of them, then none of them are being done very well. So, which is why I'm quite cheered that long-form media seems to be doing quite well, because that is a way of still being able to tell the story properly. But I don't think journalism's dead. I think, on the contrary, we're seeing the more... You know, a few years ago, we thought it was sort of collapsing the traditional media, but... Um, I think because there is so much information out there that people are turning back a bit more to traditional media, if you like. And Trump, you know, and all his campaign against fake news and um, calling media enemies of the state, which is, you know, something dictators normally say. Um, that has actually resulted in a lot more people turning to those very organizations he's criticizing. So the New York Times has had 600,000 extra subscriptions taken out in the last six months. Um, even papers in Britain, we, we sell more because of Trump. Um, so that's sort of unexpected. <laughs> I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming tonight. It's definitely, I think, for a lot of us, a bit of a fangirl moment slash fanboy. Thank you. Um, my question is, especially before you became a well-established journalist, did you ever feel pressured to write history from a certain perspective where it wasn't necessarily what you were observing um, and at times on the brink of distortion? No, because I was always very much my own person. I mean, I went to places, I didn't um, 
I just did stories I wanted to do, so I've never felt pressured like that. The only time I had a real conflict, I would say, was um, when I moved back to London and worked in a newsroom for the first time. This was, I was diplomatic co correspondent for the Sunday Telegraph, which is a right-wing newspaper in the UK and was owned by Comrade Black at the time. And I was a bit worried about joining this right-wing newspaper. It wasn't really my politics. Um, but I thought I will be writing about foreign things. It won't matter. And the first thing that happened was General Pinochet got arrested. And I suddenly found myself pretty much as, as the Pinochet correspondent <laughs> because so he, he was then um, being held under house arrest in the UK. I had lived in Latin America and spoke Spanish. Um, and Comrade Black and indeed the editor of the Sunday Telegraph thought that General Pinochet was a really good thing. <laughs> and he may have thrown thousands of people out of helicopters and tortured and killed them, but they probably would have liked to have done that too. <laughs> and, um, and they used to say things like, you know, Pinochet reformed the Chilean um, pension system. <laughs> so when I was at university, I had demonstrated against Pinochet. <laughs> and so I found myself in a very difficult position because I was writing for this paper that thought he was a good thing and was sort of uh, outraged at how he was being treated in the UK. Um, but I kind of quite liked that in a way because I thought, so it's my challenge to get the other point of view into this paper, right? I mean, because really writing what I felt in a paper like The Guardian was no challenge because you were just sort of preaching to the converted. So I kept interviewing. Whatever story I was doing, I would always interview um, people who'd been tortured by Pinochet and put their side. And I always started, like, the stories, whatever it was about, I always put Pinochet, comma, who was responsible for the death and disappearance of, you know, this 3,196 people, whatever it was. Um, so I would always get my editor with his black pen and saying, how do you know this? And I'd say, you know, this is all catalogued. And how do you know these people were tortured? <laughs> so we used to have these long arguments, um, and which sort of culminated with us getting the first interview with Pinochet when um, he finally gave an interview. And he agreed that he would give it to me. And then I was pregnant, and my son was actually born three months early. So I sort of, having been hanging out with the Pinochet people for months, I suddenly disappeared, right? And so they didn't really know where I was. Then the interview came up, and I just had the baby. So my editor said, right, I'm going to do the interview, and you just come with me. So I completely had lost control by then of this interview because I'd been in hospital. He'd by then agreed that all the questions would be shown in advance, something I would never have agreed. So we go to do this interview. And um, when I got there, the Pinochet people said to me, you know, where have you been? We haven't seen you for ages. So I said I had a baby. <laughs> and they were completely astonished. Um, and so they told Pinochet this. And... He then, after the interview, which was 
ridiculous interview. My editor was asking him questions and really being soft on him. And so I kept like interrupting and saying, you know, this isn't true, or ask him about this, or ask him about killing these people. And he was getting quite cross. Um, and at the end of the interview, we then had a tour of the house, and we went into Pinochet's office. And Pinochet said to me, what's the name of your son? So I said, Lorenzo. And to my horror, he took a book off the shelf and wrote in it, um, para Lorenzo con todo mi cariño, Augusto Pinochet, to Lorenzo with all my love, Augusto Pinochet. <laughs> this was the first present for my son from a dictator. <laughs> and, um, so, I, yes. <laughs> Hello. Uh, so, I've got two questions to ask you. First of all, you have been in Pakistan and Afghanistan for so long, and I've read two of your books, and I see how intimately you do with some of the issues of these two countries. So firstly, can you speak any of the languages that are spoken by people over there? Can you speak any Dari or Pashto or Urdu? And secondly, uh, considering that you have been over here for so long and that you've also um, written about Syria, how do you think that the future might unfold for these countries, countries where Muslim majorities live? And how do you think that uh, Muslims living in these countries could somehow make sense of their lives as Muslims and also live in a globalized world? Well, that's an easy question. <laughs> um, okay, well, the first part, the language, yes, I should have said when you asked about advice, I think language is very important, actually, and, you know, to be in a place, um, it makes all the difference if you can speak to people in their own language. Uh, now, when I lived in Peshawar in the late 80s and I was traveling with the Mujahideen, I learned Pashto because I, um, I mean, I couldn't afford an interpreter apart from anything else. And it was important also to be able to understand, like if they said to me, we're being bombed, <laughs> um, I needed to know that. So um, I don't really speak Urdu. I, I found it difficult in Pakistan because Pakistan, lots of people speak English. Um, although Urdu is the national language, there are different languages in different provinces. There's Punjabi and Sindhi and Saraiki and Pashto. So it always felt like it was, I mean, it seemed as though it was more people spoke English than Urdu. But um, I, I, so I understand little bits of it, but I don't speak it. I wish I did. Now I wish I spoke Arabic. That would be very useful. And I'm afraid I don't. Um, on your other easy question about <laughs> the future of the, the region, I'm not very optimistic, I don't know. Um, you know, all those countries have got very young populations. Most of the countries in the Middle East have got about 70% of the population under 30. And that's one of the real challenges that, you know, those people they need opportunities. Uh, Afghanistan is an example of that. You go into any village and it's full of young people sitting around with nothing to do. If the Taliban or ISIS then come and offer money to go and fight for them, what are they going to do? And uh, so um, this is something that I think the West needs to think of much more when we go into these countries of finding a way to provide opportunities. We spent much too much money sending foreign consultants and paying them to do jobs rather than training people in those countries to do them. 
Um, and I'm afraid that that's still happening to this day. Um, and, you know, one of the problems is you're not fighting. We don't seem to be able to end wars, right, anymore. All these wars are still going on. And you're not fighting nation states, you're fighting ideas. So with Daesh, I'm quite confident that they'll be driven out of Raqqa. But that's not going to be the end of it. And, you know, some people fear for us it could make it worse because lots of people will go back to Western countries and and try and launch things there. So, um, you know, I, we still really grappling with how to actually um, win over hearts and minds of people. And I think, you know, people like Malala are important because she's showing a different face of Islam and she speaks, she is very devout. She speaks about the Quran a lot. Um, and she, you know, points out that it says in the Quran that to every man what he earns and every woman what she earns. It doesn't say that women shouldn't work. It doesn't say girls shouldn't go to school. And that, you know, there are people trying to distort these, the Quran. And so I think, you know, it's giving space to people like that is very, very important. And I think that. Um, education for girls is very important too. But I also believe that justice needs to be seen to be done in places and that doesn't often happen. I'm worried now with the Yazidi women and, and men, you know, the terrible things that happened. Um, and, you know, th these people need to see that people are going to be brought to justice for it. And I'm not sure that that is going to happen. Uh, thank you very much for speaking with us this evening. It's incredible to hear of your work and your passion in this field and your dedication is just extraordinary. Um, my question is in regards to how you sustain this because obviously so much of what you see and what you report on is so difficult and is actually quite traumatic. So how do you find that balance between serving that greater purpose of your work and that these stories really do need to be told um, with your own personal needs for dealing with that? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, well, partly it's because of, you know, meeting inspiring people and being able to show their stories. Um, but I have to say that over the last two years, I have covered more shocking brutality against women than at any time in my career, and that's very depressing. So the Yazidi girls, I mean, talking to a 16-year-old girl who was kept as a sex slave, who told me that the fat Islamic judge who had taken her and was raping her every night, that the worst night was when he brought back a 12-year-old girl and raped her in the room next door as she cried for her mother all night. You know, stories like that. Um, and then in Nigeria, the Boko Haram girls who were, you know, we all, this is one of the, f the problems of the media. We have very short attention spans, so we all made a big fuss about the Chibok girls for a couple of weeks. 
and then everyone forgot about them. <laughs> but actually, when I went to try to do something about what happened to them, which is now the third year that they've been missing, um, I found that thousands of other girls had been abducted that hadn't been reported on at all. And some of them had by then been released, but were in camps in Madugari in northeastern Nigeria. And they were in a terrible situation because they'd been basically kept as sex slaves or forcibly married to Boko Haram and raped. Um, and then when they'd been released, their own families wouldn't take them back because they saw them as being in, having been indoctrinated, so maybe dangerous or sullied. Um, so these girls are like victims twice over and have no hope. Um, so, you know, that was so depressing. And they're getting very little help. I mean, even there's a lot more attention on northern Iraq and on the Yazidis. But even that, you know, there are only three psychiatrists in the camps in northern Iraq for um, over a million people. And in northeastern Nigeria, they're not getting any psychiatric help at all. So seeing things like that is hard to deal with. And also now that um, everybody's on WhatsApp. So in the old days, you used to go and cover a story and then move on to the next story. Um, now I stay in touch with everybody through WhatsApp. And that kind of started a lot during the refugee crisis that I would ask people for their contacts because I wanted to find out what happened to them. And then they were passing my contact to other people, and it was almost like I was a sort of migrant advisory service. <laughs> I would get these messages from people saying, I'm stuck in Croatia, which way should I go? Um, but um, what happens now is I get a lot of messages on WhatsApp from people I've met, you know, that wanting to know what difference my story will make to them, and that's very hard to respond to. So I, I still find that quite hard to deal with, I have to say. I'm curious when you've interviewed some of these powerful, sometimes brutal um, leaders, have you ever felt like you've gone too far and poked the bear? <laughs> um, well, sometimes it's quite difficult to not let your feelings get involved when you interview people. I'll give you an example, actually. So, 2009, I think, I went to interview Donald Rumsfeld in New York. He'd just written his memoir. And it was a bit like these Hollywood actresses' interviews where he sat in a hotel room with his PR people and then, you know, one journalist would come in and then the next, and it was a sort of conveyor belt. So I had my, I think it was like half an hour. And I hadn't realized until I went into that room how angry I was about the war in Iraq and his complete refusal in his book to admit any responsibility for what they'd done or the mention of, you know, the 100,000 people that had been killed at that point. So I ended up having a huge argument with him. It was a useless interview. <laughs> At the end of the half hour, I walked out and realized I basically got nothing. I'd made clear what I thought about the war in Iraq. Um, and 
actually, I heard him be interviewed on Fox News, completely different interview where they were very kind of gracious. And it was a much more useful interview because he spoke a lot more. And I thought, God, what am I going to do? And it was also quite funny. I came out of that interview, was really angry. And I lived in Washington, so I was getting a train back in the afternoon. Um, and I came out and I left my um, bag with his hotel reception um, while I, I was just going to go for a, a walk. When I came out, I, the first thing I saw was an expensive shoe shop, Jimmy Choo, <laughs> with a sales sign. So I went in this shoe shop and I bought these boots in the sale, which had heels like daggers. To, we call them the Rumsfeld boots at home. <laughs> Um, and they were in a big bag. I then walked back to the hotel to collect my computer bag. And can you believe, as I got in, into the foyer, Donald Rumsfeld was just coming out of the lift. So I was carrying this big shopping bag. So he looked at me and said, oh, been shopping, have we? <laughs> I felt really stupid after I'd been giving him this sort of lesson on morality. And then when I got to the train, I managed to get the train going the wrong direction. <laughs> so... Um, so, yeah, sometimes it does get to me. <laughs> if there's no further questions, I'd just like to end with a personal question. Um, many of these uh, of our audience here are media students or uh, of various interest in the media. So, is there advice that you could give them to looking forward? Um, you've talked about some of the qualities that make a good journalist and how it has changed so much, how it's more dangerous um, and that what's required of you is different. Can you give them a word of advice? Leaving here, what would you advise them? Well, I mean, I think it is a great job, right? I've never been bored. <laughs> and I've had a lot of fun, despite, you know, telling bad stories as well. Um, I think it's really important work. It matters to go and bear witness to these places, otherwise people don't know. Um, and so, you know, please don't be put off. Go and do it and go and ask questions. And like I said, you know, if people don't like you asking questions, it probably means that you're on something because that's why they are uh, sensitive. So um, go out there, ask questions, go to places. I still think, you know, it's, it is, I mean, in a strange way, because we've all sacked a lot of our correspondents, there's actually more opportunities for freelance journalists than there used to be. Um, and also, it's sort of easier making contact now with foreign editors because it's so easy to email people. Um, but you need to choose wisely where you go. And... You should choose somewhere that you like living because <laughs> you're going to be there for a while. And ideally somewhere cheap because <laughs> you might not earn it very much for a while. Um, and it's always good if you can find a place that is like in a good position to get to other places. So one of my young colleagues at Sunday Times went to Turkey. And that was a great place because, I mean, of course, Turkey now has become a big story. But also from there, it's easy to get to... Greece, the refugee crisis, or Syria. Um, similarly, in Africa, Nairobi is a good jumping off spot to get to other places. So, you know, if you're interested in being a foreign correspondent, try and, you know, pick somewhere where you can be well located and um, make sure foreign editors know that you're 
you're there and you know listen to people and tell their stories actually one further last question can you just tell us the two young women what their epilogues are from your book yeah sure so malala um is 20 now unbelievably and she just did her a levels so she will get her results next week and then she's going to university she has a place at oxford uh, it's dependent on her A-levels, but I suspect having a Nobel Peace Prize is pretty good <laughs> on your CV. Um, she's very funny because she's been very worried about her exams because she says, you know, it looked really bad if, you know, I was shot for the sake of going to school if I then fail my exams. Um, and Najine is 17 now and oh, sorry she's 18 now and she's at school in Germany for the first time at school and is very happy um, she went to school for the first time at 17 and she found it quite strange because she had I've never met anyone who knows so many facts because she watched endlessly the history channel and National Geographic and things so she knows all about, she can list all the kings and queens of England. She loves teasing me about British history, asking me things I don't know. Um, and she knows all about string theory and space. And, but she never learned basic multiplication. She didn't, she couldn't multiply three by three. You know, it was kind of, um, so at school she found it quite hard to start with because they sort of made fun of her that she was 17 and didn't know things that a five-year-old should know in theory but then she knew all this other stuff but she's phenomenally bright and she's caught up and she already speaks German she's quite amazing um, in some ways it's harder for the older refugees actually because the young ones do pick up the language quickly her sister who's nine years older and has a physics degree from Aleppo University is finding it very hard because she you know can't speak German she can't get a job um, and so that's much more difficult but you know they are happy that they're safe and you know as Najin says refugees just want to be able to get up in the morning brush their teeth go to school go to work and know that they can come back again safely in the evening and they have that now so um, she was even happy to have a brace on her teeth <laughs> All right. thank you Christina um, I'm going to invite Christina to take up a position on the way out so that if you have any further questions that you'd like to speak to her personally, please do. And there's a pile of books there, these plus some of her many other titles. So please join me in thanking Christina and her partner for a most interesting evening. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.